0: All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Within Tolerance. This is episode 20, and we are joined by the Dr. Phil experience from Instagram. If you guys aren't following him, you definitely have to go check out his Instagram. He does a lot of cool five-axis machining, a lot of really intricate, cool parts that are surfaced on all sorts of angles, really cool stuff. I'm actually going to have Dylan introduce him, so Dylan, why don't you take it away?
1: Yeah, I mean, you kind of covered it. He does some amazing work over at uh, MJK and uh just really cool motorcycle performance parts that you know even if you're not a motorcyclist or interested in that kind of stuff just amazing work holding fixturing cool machines uh you know phil if you could just take it away and kind of let us know what you do and uh brief background on you know who you are and and, uh what's going on in your your world
2: yeah well i'm i'm the dr phil experience i guess i'm real name's phil butterworth i uh i do all the design and cad cam machining for uh mjk performance uh, my company building motorcycle parts um pretty high end high at least i like to think they're high end but we specialize <laughs> in uh, in five axis machining so every design i make has got to be is is directed towards five axis so i can take advantage of all the all the cool stuff so, yeah, that's basically what uh what I do.
1: So how did you get into machining? Um, what's your background, and you know how did MJK start?
2: Well, let's see. Well, getting into machining is kind of fun. I I am the typical high school student that did not try at all. <laughs> so like you know, C B student barely passed, uh, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, uh, and used to watch the biker build off series on discovery all the time. That was like my big, my big <laughs> weekly thing. And I saw, I can't remember which builder it was, but they were machining a wheel and I saw that and I was in grade 12 and I was like, I gotta do that. That looks cool. So I looked up the course on my, our local tech college and signed up. And for like the first year, I probably probably got a year. Um, while I was waiting to get in or graduate and get in. I actually thought that this was called mechaning, not machining. <laughs> I was telling everyone I was going to be a mechanist.
1: Oh jeez. <laughs>
2: so yeah, I didn't really know what I was doing or what I wanted to do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we went to a four-year apprenticeship program through one of our tech colleges here. I learned all the manual stuff. There was hardly any CNC in school. Uh, in the early 2000s, at least where we were. So did four-year apprenticeship, manual, uh, did all manual, did all in the oil and gas industry. That's pretty much all we have out here. A little bit of aerospace, if you're lucky, but it's all dirty, greasy, 40-foot-long pipes you're putting threads on and all the drill bits and things.
1: Okay, so the same kind of stuff that the lathe night podcast guys talk about yeah. all the time.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just... Great definitely did not enjoy it. I was not a, a fan of machining for the, quite a while, actually, because it was so just the industry we're in, it's a uh, you don't get to get ahead kind of thing. You, where you are here or where we are, you're just hired to run a machine, call yourself machinist at your school, get your journeyman certificate. Uh, but no one's really out there helping you become a programmer or get better. Uh, it's just run a machine and you're in a number. Uh, and I can't, I can't do that. That was driving me nuts. So after work, I would bring manuals home and I'd try and teach myself how to write macros and program myself all hand code. Uh, cause just because I can't. I can't run other people's programs. It drives me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah. Yeah. So I, I got started into programming. is I, uh, I started making macro programs to do some uh, flats and things that we would cut on pipe and I guess bosses kind of saw that so they signed me up for a mastercam course and I took that uh, and then started programming uh, not really complicated but some pretty easy oil field pieces 2d a little bit of 3d stuff and then kind of things start that there's a big downturn in the oil industry you got or And the housing industry, that pretty much crashed the market for us. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was out of a job, had to don't tell anyone this, but I had to lie on my resume (laughs) and told everyone I was a mechanical engineer, (laughs) (laughs) I actually got a job designing drill bits for an oil company. So that was fun. And then designing them. I also had to learn how to program them because they were also a machine shop. (laughs) So I had my kind of. Real introduction into 3 plus 2 and multi-axis uh, machining was I had told someone I knew what I was doing, and then they came to me with a uh, a PDC, like a, a, a drill bit that's got all kind of 3 plus 2, 5-axis stuff on it with lots of uh, cutters all over these, these fun profiles. I don't know. If you ever look, Google a, a PDC drill bit, you'll see, and uh, my boss basically gave me a due date with the, I think they gave it to me on Monday and he did it by Wednesday, and I had never done multi-axis stuff before.
1: Oh my goodness! I'm kind of like, okay,
2: I guess I'll. Uh, <laughs> you tell people you're good at something, and they challenge you, so I had to jump into <laughs> it. But got it done. A lot of YouTube videos. <laughs> make a 5 yeah, a lot of real quick.
1: What a trial by fire for real. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I tend to get myself into these kind of situations.
1: (laughs) So how did you transition from making drill bits to starting your own company? Are you, I know Windmill Motorsports had asked, you know, are you a Harley guy or are you just making into making custom parts? Like how did did you get there, Um, I guess?
2: Yeah, so this is another kind of an interesting thing is uh, my business partner, Dale. He was known as Mad Jap Customs back in the day. And he would, he would hand build motorcycles, you know, weld the frame, bend the pipe. Like everything he made was handmade uh, and he was very well known for it. And I followed him on Instagram uh, and I was always a big fan. Um, and he posted one day on Instagram that he needed this little bracket made for a bike he was building. And I thought, okay, hey, this is my chance. I've got to do this because, you know, I want to work with this guy. So I go to his shop, we measure some things up, I take it back to the shop I was working at and late one night, I think I stayed up till probably one in the morning working on this simple bracket, added some fancy pockets to it uh, and then the next day I brought it back to him he took one look at it and said, okay, we have to buy a machine together, like just, we can't let this go.
0: That's awesome.
2: <laughs> Yeah, I kind of laughed it off thinking, I've been promised the world before, sure, it's cool, but this is probably the last time we'll see each other. But no, a week later, we found a machine on, on uh, our local Craigslist and bought it, a couple thousand dollars. I was like, oh, this is pretty fancy. So I started making a couple <laughs> little little t- trinket parts for a bike he was building, and then I ended up losing my job at, a, at an oil company because I mean, there was... Up and down that industry, so I came in with uh, without a job, and we just decided, you know, we should make this full time. We should we should start making bike parts for together for a living. So we
1: wow,
2: yeah. So we, I mean, we've when we first started, we were all like the old Harleys, the shovel heads and panhead stuff. We were building small parts for them, uh, and I, I was really kind of into the chopper scene back then as well. So we were doing, um, transmission plates and and little covers for things. Uh, but I mean, I think I made, I don't know, a hundred dollars in the first two months, so we were like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, this is great, but we need to do something else if we're going to be a a surviving business. And that's when we kind of decided to jump in, buy a brand new Harley, uh, uh, off the showroom floor. Uh, and start making parts for that, and that's kind of how it's how it started.
1: So, what was that first machine that you guys bought?
2: That was a that was some Thai Taiwanese machine. It was a Protus. I'd never seen him or heard of him before, but a little fan of control. It was a two thousand four, I think. Um, yeah, three axis. It was called a Protus. Really funky looking uh, sheet metal on it. It was a hideous purple color too, which, which was fun. Phil, so what
0: year did you buy that first machine?
2: That was only three years ago.
0: Oh, so that's pretty recent then. Yeah. Oh okay. wow, I had no
2: idea you guys were that new. Oh no, yeah, we're uh, yeah we're about about three years old now. Wow. I think any maybe next month.
1: Wow. Well, congrats. That's you guys have grown an amazing amount then for three years. I. Just from like the amount of machinery you have and the parts you guys are producing, I had assumed, it, you know, incorrectly that you guys have been doing this for a really long time.
2: Oh no, my yeah, Dale and I are both the type of people to you dive into something headfirst and you make it your life.
1: <laughs> um,
2: so that, that's I think that's the only that kind of worth that thick was the only thing that got us to move so fast. Is the first year and a half was those eighteen hour. 18 hour days or you'd, you know, you'd stay at the shop for two days and you wouldn't come home <laughs> you just work and work and work trying to get the name out there, trying to make the fanciest parts you can. When, and our, our real big thing, luckily Dale already had a pretty big Instagram following. So we were able to capitalize on that. Uh, but we, we came out when we decided to really push and make this our thing. That's when we got our first five-axis machine. So we probably had this three-axis for maybe three or four months. And then we decided to make this our full-time gig. We said the only way we're going to make a name for ourselves is if we, we invest in a five-axis machine and we take advantage of five-axis machining so we can do all the fun angles and holes at different angles and all the crazy stuff and make the videos and and, and do our social media game with that. I think that so
1: that's me, what helped us. So speaking of machines, let, let's do a deep dive on machines. You know what? What's your machine lineup currently at MJK? Currently,
2: we have our bread and butter machine, our Herco uh, VMX Forty Two UI. That is our first five-axis machine, and that thing is a, a beast. Can't say enough good things about that. And then we have our Herco TMX Eight, which is a just a small uh, two-axis lathe. Uh, gets turned on every once in a while it's it's not a production thing uh, then then we bought them at sura uh, with the mX three thirty with the 10 pallets and just recently as maybe a month ago we bought another three uh, axis herco a vm 20 i
1: okay so uh, you know one question that windmill motorsports had was why herco you know what made you guys choose that for your first five axis and continue to choose it? That was
2: just simply the persistence of a sales guy, uh, from Elliot menu for Elliott machinery that would, um, he would come in every, I don't know, like once, a couple times a month, I think he came four or five times before we bought the machine, uh, trying to sell us on some Matsuras, uh, we were like, no, we can't afford these high-end machines back then. And then he finally came up and, and showed us this Herco and I've never heard of Herco before never seen one, never heard of one. Uh, So he gave us kind of the brochure. Uh, They were ended up having, they were having like an end of year sale. So we got a pretty good price. And there was was really no one else around here other than I think DMG and Mazak, uh, but their machines were a little out of our price range. So the Herco just landed right it was a size we needed or a size we wanted and at the price we could actually afford so that's how we jumped into
1: it um, and it looked cool i mean they're just cool <laughs> looking jeans yes me. yeah they are dual screens and you know all the bells and whistles for sure yeah the sheet metal's nice color's good <laughs> so what made you guys go for the mx330 then with i mean you had such a great experience with your herco was it the palette changer got uh, clive murphy from power break actually asked that
2: yeah, so yeah, that was, that was a, a big one too is we knew we were starting to get a lot more orders. We needed to have more automation. Uh, couldn't really afford to hire uh, a full-time employee at that time, but we wanted to invest that money into another spindle. So getting something with an automation was uh, was really the key. And since we had such good experiences with Elliot, their main machine brand is Matsura. So we looked at the Metzeras, then uh, thought about maybe an Aroa for our current Herco, but we really just needed an extra spindle. Uh, so we looked at this MX three thirty. We saw there was a more rigid machine, faster spindle, like just a, a better, a higher end uh, machine. So we thought if we can make really nice parts with this uh, mid range machine we have now, think of the things we could do with this high end machine. So we kind of. We got stars in our eyes thinking about that. So we, we jumped into it knowing that there's automation and it's, it's a, you know, our surface finishes are probably going to be better. So yeah, that's how we jumped into it.
1: And I know you guys had kind of a, a rocky start when you first got that, <laughs> but everything's up and running now. Yeah. Everything's vertical now and it's, it's going straight. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, boy,
2: it's, uh, it's been a, a couple, few issues to that machine. I'm still not a big uh, fanic guy. Uh, But I mean, it runs lights out It it'll run 24 seven. I don't really have to worry about it. I don't have to play with the control anymore. Uh, I got an employee that runs the machine now, but uh, yeah, it's been pretty good for us.
1: That's awesome. So how many hours of unattended run now do you get with the 10 pallets? Uh, Depending on the parts we're doing, our, our longest
2: part is our brake calipers and they take about three hours to machine. Or for the first stop, so loaded up on the uh, on ten pallets that'll run for a solid day and a half before we uh, have to do anything. So that's that's pretty nice. But most of our stuff will range from ten minutes to an hour. So our average is probably four hours of uh, unattended. So it's not the best, but uh, it helps when we still have. We're only we only had two employees or myself and one other, uh, our newest employee, Jason, uh, to run machines. So we had three machines to run. So it even having four hours is still pretty helpful.
1: Oh yeah, totally. So when what, we, um, I'll go for it.
2: I was gonna say, but when we get those, uh, get the brake calipers on there and they run for a few days at a time, that's pretty, that's pretty nice.
1: Yeah. That's the dream. Yeah. Sure.
2: is nicer than, shutting the lights off in the shop and the machines are running and then coming in the next day and still a bunch of good parts are being made.
1: So what's your approach for those guys? I mean, for some of your smaller parts, I imagine you can do more than one part per pallet, or are you guys sticking to one part per pallet? Like how do you, how do you plan fixturing versus time on the machine versus all of that? It gets a, it gets a little tricky
2: with some of the stuff we do because we really try and take advantage of the, that how we can hit things from all sides. So of quite a number of our parts are kind of only geared to running one at a time, just so we can get all the way around it. We're pushing now, uh, we're coming out with a new product line. This is what we're doing at the moment. So I'm trying to design our parts to be able to, you know, take advantage of five axis work, but be able to be made on a tombstone as well. I'm trying to learn from our previous lessons. So. We have a couple of fixtures, but for the most part, most of our stuff's just one at a time. Which so, is... are
1: you using vices or are you using dovetail yeah. fixtures? What's your your go to?
2: Yeah, we have uh, the uh, little five axis or fifth axis vices. And for 90% of our work, it just gets locked in there. Uh, we used to do when we were running production on the Herco, I would make dovetail fixtures. Uh, but since, since we have the pallets now, I, I, I've kind of gotten away from that. We don't do a lot of dovetail stuff anymore, except for our more complicated pieces, like our swing arms and some of our risers and our our triple clamps, where they're quite a bit bigger and I don't have a lot of room to hold on to. So I I will do small dovetails because they're amazingly
1: powerful. So speaking of your swing arm, I mean that is, as a motorcyclist myself, like absolute motorcycle porn. um, (laughs) How did you guys like? Did you do all of the analysis internally and design. Like how did that come to uh, fruition?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, the uh, analysis stuff, everything's done through fusion from design to, uh, to the stress tests. Um, we do that all kind of beforehand design something throw it through simulation. And then when we're finished, um, we have a working prototype. Uh, my business partner, Dale is actually a retired uh, road racer, like motor GP style bikes. So we'll throw our prototype pieces on one of our Harleys and then take it to a track and he'll actually run the track with it, which is a, terrifies me, but he loves
1: it. <laughs> yeah. I've seen him. He's got a, an RC8R, right? Or an RC8? Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah he, he is a fast guy. I think he used to ride for Kawasaki Canada.
1: Oh, wow. That's awesome. awesome. I mean, that, what a great resource to have on as your business partner.
2: Oh yeah. It's, it's a, he is the bike guru. Uh, so that kind of helps because the way we run is I know he knows everything there is to know about bikes and he knows that I'm really good at machining. So that's the way our, our business partner works. And we both have our very select uh, select areas we're good at.
1: Yeah, that sounds like it. That's, that's awesome. But yeah, um, well,
2: yeah, how, how the, mach- the swingarm came to be. That was a bike we were building for Sturgis uh, two years ago. Last year, I can just take like all the time is just blended together for me here. <laughs> so many long nights. Oh yeah. But yeah that, that one came from, uh, we designed it, put it through the, uh, fusion stress tests. And then I had the prototype in two days. Jeez. That's that's, this is how we work is Dale gets an idea and he is the epitome of a dreamer. He comes up with a bike idea and then says, we need to make this and it has to be made right now. I don't know why. There's no real time limits, but it's gotta be made now. And so I've learned to make things very fast.
1: <laughs> two days is insane though for that. Yeah, that a lot of our pieces go,
2: like a lot of our pieces go from design to prototype, either
1: same day or in, you know, max two or three days. So that actually brings me to one of the questions I put down was, how do you guys plan for product R&D time versus production time? I mean, now you've got that other three-axis mill and you've got two five-axis. But I imagine, I mean, it seems like you guys are running all the time just to keep up with demand. How do you fit R&D time into that? Yes. Well, when before we had the
2: Matsura, uh, our thing was during the week, we would run production. And on the weekends, we would do R&D. Uh, cause we consider R and D the fun time and weekends are for fun, even though <laughs> we're, we're at work. Uh, so that's how we did it before, um, uh, before the Matsura. And so we do it on the weekends or, you know, we would run 10 hours production, then break it, set down and then do some R and D at night. Now that we have the Matsura, almost about 90% of our products are made on there now. So that leaves our. Herco five axis free more often, so uh, you know it runs production every other week or so, and then I have a week or two to to do R and D on that. And luckily oh, we great. have, luckily we do have an employee who's a uh, he's officially my apprentice now. We've signed him up. So that's exciting for him. Um, and then he runs basically the other three machines in the shop, and then I focus on doing R and D on our on the Herco
1: that's awesome yeah was he the one you I know you guys had reached out on Instagram not too long ago for somebody was he the one that you guys found through that yeah I think he just kind of showed
2: up at the uh, showed up at the shop one day with his resume pretty much hired him on the spot he, he seemed like a pretty smart kid Yeah, he's been, that's great. I, he's been with us for about a year now see that's, that's great I mean yeah. what a
1: great place to learn I mean you guys do some Absolutely amazing stuff. So I'm jealous of him. (laughs) So how do you guys deal with, um, like, what kind of model are you? Are you just in time? Like, are you making parts to fill orders? Or are you guys just running as much as you can because you can't keep up with demand currently? That Yeah, that one exactly. (laughs) We are fairly far behind.
2: We, we get, um, like our orders just don't stop coming in. We don't have enough time to keep up. So that's, that's why we got, uh, our fourth machine. I am trying to, uh, get product on our shelves. So I you know we're working long nights, not super long, but we're still, we're back to, you know, 12 hour days trying to get production going, get product on our shelves, but by the time I've done a run of 30 parts, they're gone. That's hard to keep up. <laughs> Wow. we've one of our distributors is uh I think we got with got with got in with them maybe a year and a half ago. Uh they're called drag specialties and they're the biggest motorsports uh dealer in the world. Like oh, yeah. after- parts. And so with them on board, we've become worldwide. Now now we ship to Australia, uh to Europe. We're shipping things to Japan and uh Malaysia now, so it's just worth worldwide orders coming in. It, it is a uh, fairly hard to keep up. For. We are trying. <laughs> if anyone else there wants to buy our parts? We are trying. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that sounds sounds rough, but a good problem to have, I guess.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, one of those things that once you get ahead of it, then you then every smooth sailing from there.
0: So Phil, are you doing? All the order fulfillment, or are you having your employee do it, or how does that work?
2: Yeah, so right now we have uh, it's my business partner Dale, myself, uh, Dale's wife Michelle, who handles pretty much the front end of the business, uh, taking the orders, um, and she was doing the website and the, sh- the shipping and all the emails. Um, and then we have Jason, my apprentice, who's running the machines. And just as of a few weeks ago, we had another hire, Aaron, who is full-time logistics and assembly now. So he takes care of all the shipping. Um, he, he gets the parts back from anodizing, assembles them, cleans them, packages them, and ships them now. But before, it was just uh, three and then the four of us trying to do everything. And, well, yeah, it sounds like and, with know, that it's demand, that it's a
0: whole job on its own.
2: Oh, yeah. There's an art form to logistics that I am
1: have nothing to do with. (laughs) So you touched on anodize. I mean, it seems like you guys have your outside processes pretty dialed at this point. Like, uh, do you guys have any tips or like what, what kind of process has that been to get to the point where you can trust your anodizers and what should other people look for? Oh yeah. I can tell you it is. That was very difficult. So I know a lot
2: of people from conversations I've had on Instagram and with other shops is plating and anodizing has always been a nightmare. Um, We've been to, let's say seven or eight different anodizers in three different provinces in Canada now before we finally found um, this guy uh, who's up in Edmonton uh, a couple hours north of us. Uh, he was giving us the quality we wanted. We were still giving some issues, but he was willing to work with us. Um, and we had to go up there, you know, the town's a couple hours away and we'd have to drive up and, and kind of go over what we expect, how we can make things better for him to make the quality better. Um, we pay more. That was a big thing. Uh, we, we, we'll tell you that if you're going to do outside work for us, like plating and things, I will pay you more than what you want because I want the quality, uh, so if you need another few dollars, another 10, 20% to make things nice, do it. I will, I will pay for it. Uh, so that it's been a, been a long process for that. I mean, we, we've probably scrapped $40,000 worth of parts for wow. bad analyzing through over the years, Over That's the last rough. two years. Yeah. It's rough when you spend, you know, you're working those 18, 20 hour days working all night, you haven't seen your family in a couple months because you've worked every single day, they get a big batch of parts out, they go out, they're perfect, they come back from anodizing, and they're all scrap. You're like, oh my gosh. Uh, You know, you probably almost go bankrupt a couple of times just trying to get anodizing going. When it's out of your control, it's so so hard.
1: Yeah, when it's such a a small value process for them where it's such a large, I mean, like you said, it can scrap Tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a product, but for them it's, you know, a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollar a lot charge. Like, so yeah, exactly. It's, it's really tough. So that's why. We, are there things that you design for, like rack holes specifically for anodized? Like, what specifically do you? I, I know you guys do amazing packaging just to get it to them and back. Um, yeah, that,
2: that's a huge thing too. Um, when we first started, it was everything was hand wrapped in paper towels and and uh, taped together and every individual part was done like that. But now we, we invested in a, a laser cutter and we laser cut specific foam that goes in nice Tupperware boxes, perfectly layered. So every piece has its own perfect spot. It's not going to move or touch anything else. Uh, and that's something we've, we've been working with our anodizer a lot with is, yeah, we will try and minimize every risk on our end. So everything on his end is easy. Every piece before we send it is hand-washed soap and water, uh, dried off. It's rinsed with Windex right before it goes into our foam bins. Uh, and then the bins are shut so that no dirt or dust can get in them. Uh, they're strapped down, uh, so that when he gets them, it's just Part out, throwing the anodized part back in and ship back. Um, so, yeah, I, we will happily take the extra time and pay more for so that we know that in the end we're getting a better product so that we can send, we can happily tell our customers that you are getting the best.
1: That's great. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely sounds like a significant amount more work than most people are willing to put in. But, oh, yeah. I mean, clearly the quality shows and, and, the pictures you guys take and the parts you guys put out so
2: yeah we make sure especially with anodizing that uh everything's either type 2 or type 3 or hard anodized and it has to be uv protected Uh, it's nothing worse than buying a a a piece to put on your nice new bike build and then a couple of months in the arizona sun and it's the black is now purple
1: (sighs) yeah the uh tops of my forks the adjusters were red when i bought the bike and now they're pink yeah I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that that was factory. So it's, it's only even more embarrassing for them.
2: Oh yeah. That that's like, we can't let that happen. If we got to pay for the UV protection, I, I want yeah. these parts to last a lifetime.
1: Well, that's, that's great to hear. Cause yeah, it's, it, it's very disheartening because there's nothing you can do about it besides, you know, stripping an entire front end to get like the tiny little adjusters out and have them coated or stripped and recoded or something like that. Oh yeah. Or just get the magic markers out. (laughs) (laughs) I would never do that. (laughs) So uh, let's jump back a little bit into Five Axis because you guys, I mean, you do some amazing programming. Um, Especially, I think, one thing that you guys at least video really well and uh, photograph really well is all the tabbing that you do. So Mm -hmm. let's go into tabbing. You know, what is it? How do you do it? And how did you learn to do it? Okay, so tabbing is, it's kind of our way
2: um, of making your piece finished in one operation. So you can, especially on five axis, you can tackle the piece from, uh, you know, all sides and then in the same operation, you just tilt the A-axis or whatever, and basically use a, an end mill or you can use a slitting saw or something and just cut the piece off of the rest of your stock. So that you have a perfect piece finished in one operation. Um, so when you're doing something like that, you definitely leave a lot of extra stock so you have room to cut it off. So it's a bit wasteful, but for making prototypes, uh, it's it's almost a no-brainer. Cause you don't have to spend the time working on soft jaws and, and other second-op fixtures that you might only use once because you might change the design as soon as you've tested this piece out. So it's a great way of finishing a piece, one operation, cut it off, test fit it, need to make adjustments, then you can go into actually producing proper fixtures. But I, I actually learned how to do that through Angelo the true Croatian sensation on Instagram from Autodesk.
1: Okay. Yeah.
2: When I, when I first used uh, fusion, and I was trying to go through some videos on YouTube on how to how on earth to use this new software. I think one of the first ones I saw was in, uh, Oh, kind of a webcast with Angelo talking about 5X's workholding and things he's done in the past when he used to own a shop and when he used to work for Tesla. He's become a good friend of mine now, but I saw that and there was all, he had all these examples of cool workholding and tabbing and other things. And I, I just took pictures of everything he showed and I, <laughs> at least then I threw them in kind of a, a, a workholding folder I have I keep on my computer. So that's... That's kind of how I first saw it, and then I just tried it out because I need to make this piece uh, for a uh, front end that we were building, and it was maybe 4 in the morning, and I'm still working on this thing, and I thought, okay, I have one piece left for this thing. I am not making more soft jaws. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I kind of tried it out, it was just more or less frustration and sheer laziness.
1: <laughs> so what's the... The, um, I mean, obviously the goal is to have the tab left, but I've always worried. I mean, I've never been able to do it because I don't have a five axis, but I've always thought about it and worried about the cutter binding up in the slot. Are you using gravity to kind of pull the part slightly away from the cut as you're getting down to that last little bit? Or are you doing a lot of sh- shorter depth cuts to get to that final tab? Or are you doing a full depth and and then getting right to that thickness? Like what's the... What's the meat and potatoes of it, I guess?
2: Yeah, so uh, I guess my average tab thickness is probably five to 10 thou. Um, I find that's kind of 10 thou is probably a good sweet spot where it's it's still pretty strong uh, and it's not just gonna fly up into your cutter and bounce around. But I, I try to tackle it from both sides, so usually half and half, and I use a small cutter. So I think quarter inch is the biggest I'll go. I want as little cutter pressure as I can, and I will, I, I can rough it out with a uh, big depth of cuts. That doesn't really matter. until you get to like a eighth of an inch thick or so, and then I'll take my, my recipe is just 50 thou cuts back and forth, uh, attack it from both ends. Uh, until you have about 10 thou left. I try and take the last pass at my last pass has got to be at least 50 thou thick. So I still want some meat on there as I'm taking the last pass. I don't want to be taking a 5 thou or five ten thou finish pass to make a 10 thou tab because so it'll just break. So I try and take my last pass at at least 50 thou okay. to give me some room.
1: That makes total sense. And then are you leaving stock on that side of the part as well to finish up, you know, on a, a red wheel or, you know, in a second op later or are these usually just prototypes? So you just go straight to finish dimension.
2: Yeah. Um, on for, for, prototypes, I'll go straight to finish dimension. Um, for like, I do have production, uh, parts that are tapped. You've probably seen that double tabbed piece. I just put on Instagram maybe a week or so ago.
1: Yeah. That was one I wanted um, to talk to you about. That was pretty yeah. cool.
2: <laughs> that again was just out of sheer laziness. Just <laughs> two pieces. They have to meet together. Just do both at the same time. <laughs>
1: That's awesome.
2: Yeah. But something like that, I'll leave maybe five thou um, on the wall so I can hit them with a nice sander or, or, or like a Scotch Bright wheel or something.
1: Okay. right. That's really yeah, cool. Yeah. I appreciate that. That's something I definitely want to start playing around with more, even if it's yeah. just on a indexing fixture or something. Yeah. I mean, you
2: can easily do it doing, like, if you're window machining on a three axis piece and you're just hitting, you know, a piece from both sides, you can. Leave tabs in your window. I've done that before too.
1: Yeah, same. I've I've definitely done that, but it's nowhere near as impressive as you know a double stack part that you can snap off. (laughs) Yeah, that's always fun. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, it's a a super
2: cool process, and it it's a little bit scary to do, especially the first couple times because you don't really know how thick to go or or how big of a cutter you should do. I think that the thinnest one I've done is about 3 thou, and that was just blowing in the wind by the time it was done. Yes. <laughs> and then I, I've done some pretty big pieces, maybe 13 inches long, that I've tabbed. And that I actually had, just like in my old manual machining tricks, had a, a bungee cord attached to the piece, and then hanging out the window with me holding it as it's tabbing it, so I was pulling the uh, the piece away from the
1: cutter. Uh, that's always fun very cool so do you
0: try to find a flat surface on the part to do the tabs on i've been looking at your instagram here and it seems like you try to find a flat surface that you can easily blend after
2: yeah yeah i try and if i'm going to tab something for the most part it's got to be uh easy to easy to finish that side i don't want to try and do extra blending Uh, so i'll always try and hit something from from the flat side, I don't want to surface down into a tab or anything like that. Um, I have done, uh, I guess they call them sprues or something. They you see them in the medical world when they're machining dentures or, or or things like that, where they have these little little fingers almost coming out of the stock into your piece, and then you can do full three D machining around those and then just break those off. Uh, I've done that in a couple pieces okay yeah for, for regular old tabbing i'll uh i'll just find a flat edge and cut it Now for that i will use for cutting tabs i do uh do use the tab feature in in contour uh in Fusion. It's, it's so easy to use
1: oh so you're not modeling those so those are just uh generated yeah yeah i used when i was doing it first i'd model everything but
2: as I've gotten more comfortable doing this, I'll so I'll just just use tab, the regular old tab function it works perfect. I don't yeah. have to worry about extra models or anything.
1: Awesome. So speaking of yeah. modeling and all that, um I know you got Camplete with the Matsura, cuz I think they're bundled with it. Do you did you use simulation on your Herco before you had the Matsura or do you use it on both now? No, well, uh, when I when we were running the Herco,
2: I just hold my tongue to the left and hope the planet realigns. <laughs> Done. <Yeah. laughs> Uh, a lot less hair than I used to, <laughs> uh, but there, there was a Camplate's not out for Herco. Well, they don't have the Herco models yet. Oh, jeez uh, so, Yeah, so it was all j- just hoping for the best. But on on the Metzura, I'll run everything through Camplate. Just it, it's it's so easy.
1: Oh yeah, I'm just, sure. Yeah,
2: now nowadays, I mean, I can load up ten new programs on ten different pallets, and I can just hit go and walk away. I know that my speeds and feeds have been processed and been dialed in. Camtasia really tells me it's not going to crash. My tools have been in there for six months. <laughs> so I've I have done the the scary th- the Rob Lockwood stuff of throwing a brand new program in the machine, pressing go, and then going home. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> He, I think he does that a lot more than I do. I've done it once, and I didn't really
1: sleep that night.
0: Oh
1: my god! when I came back, it was fine. <laughs> but, <laughs> do yeah, you guys have really, any um, to... monitoring on your machine, like any cameras or anything like
2: that? No, I've got. i have something I want to invest in is a couple of cameras or something where I can uh, at least see if there's any alarms or anything from a phone or something. But uh, we uh, we don't really have any monitors. I got one a couple cameras in the uh, in the shop just for security but you know uh nothing on the machines
1: yeah i don't think i would have slept well that night at all
2: no <laughs> yeah, it's like, you're like okay I, I can do this i can do this. my programming is good can't says it's good i'm gonna it's gonna be fine it's gonna be fine and then you get home and you're, you're sweating at three in the morning
1: <laughs> yeah did i torque that vice correctly did i yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah oh boy so um, you guys started with Herco. Do you? I know uh, King Toucan Fab uh, asked conversational to CAD ratio. Did you guys ever use the conversational on the Herco, or was it all cam straight from the beginning?
2: Yeah, I've never used the conversational on our mill on the five axis. That's all being cam. I was. I've done a lot of conversation on our lathe, uh, but that was back when Fusion's lathe was pretty rough. Uh, I really didn't enjoy using it. So the conversational is amazing on the Herco. It's just, you know, draw your piece kind of thing, and it's done. It's kind of like, I don't know if you ever used the Akuma as the IGF, but I just I can't remember what it's called. Uh, but that, that stuff's really good. Yeah, The conversational on, on Herco is really nice, uh, and I was doing that for all of our lathe work for that until the laced side on Fusion got a lot stronger. So now it's 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 Fusion
1: for everything. Okay. Yeah, I know the Herco sales guy at IMTS last year was pushing the conversational real hard. And I was like, it's okay, buddy, I got I, I Cam. Like, I'm
2: Yeah, I think the conversational is pretty good for those shops that are still like 10 years out of date.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah he was yeah. telling me like, oh, I, I could do a part faster than you could and in Cam, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, okay, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> I can do small part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, well, that, that's interesting. I know there's a lot of people that really like the conversational on her it goes. And it, I mean, it sounds like, yeah, if you didn't have cam that worked well, like when Fusion didn't, um, that would be a really big help for sure.
2: Yeah, yeah, especially, I mean, if we didn't have, like, we're so lucky to have Fusion at being so affordable and so powerful, but... If we didn't have that and you were just buying a 5-axis machine, at least you could still do 5-axis work without spending $40,000 on software. Right. Yeah, yeah you still and you still do the 3D. You can still do adaptive uh, clearing on, on the Hercule's conversational, which I think is pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, that's some serious calculation to be able to do in the control itself. Oh, yeah. You don't want to do that by hand. No, <laughs> no, no. no. I, I wouldn't trust myself. That's for sure. <laughs> So, um, that Boone Freeman asked, "What machine would you get if you got a new five-axis?" So that kind of brings brings us around to that question. If you know, if MJK needed another one, what would you guys be looking at? If
2: money was no object, it'd be Kern, hands down. It's just those are beautiful looking machines. I would love to play with one. But in a reality, <laughs> if we needed a new machine today, I would probably, uh, I'd probably go back to Herco. Uh, They're doing a lot of new work with automation. I I believe they bought a robotics company or or partnered with one. So they're doing more integrated automation now. Uh, So, I mean, I do either that, either get a robot, their kind of robot system or an AROA system uh, attached to another
1: Herco 5 Axis. Okay. They're just much nice machines. But the next one you get for sure will be have more automation as well. Yeah. I mean,
2: automation is everything these days. Even if I was not doing our own product line, and I had a job shop, I would probably still uh, invest in automation, especially with pallets, being able to, you know, spend five, six hours during the day to program some pieces, throw them on pallets, and then have you run all your jobs at night. Uh, Like, you can't compete with that. That's
1: such an amazing thing
2: we have these days.
1: Definitely. So did you guys ever look at Haas? I know somebody, JC Me Rowland asked opinion on Herco versus Haas. Was Haas ever in the picture for you guys? Or I mean. It it kind
2: of wasn't at the beginning only because our, our Haas reseller we have here. uh, I've dealt with them a lot over the years and they've been, they were really bad for a long time. They're, I, I mean, I've, uh, seen some of their or I've talked to some of their apps guys now and some of their new sales guys. So was, you know our local Haas dealers are a lot better now, uh, and I would consider them again. But at the time when we were buying machines, uh, I just knew that I you knew I didn't want to deal with these guys, and I, we knew we wanted to get five axis. And I've run three plus two Haas stuff before that I didn't like on on a big EC sixteen hundred a uh, uh, horizontal. Okay. Uh, Again, older machines, I know Haas these days, in the last few, five, ten years or so, has really revamped and gotten really rock solid machines coming now. Uh, But we also just had a really good sales rep with Elliot. And, you know, he's been, they've been fantastic to us. So, it's, uh, we have a really good relationship with them. So, I'm very happy to, you know, have them uh, supply us with machines because they deal with the other companies we like as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, a, a good salesman and good uh, service and all that is pretty paramount in buying a machine. Oh
2: yeah, it's scary buying a machine, spending you know your life savings or twice the price of a house on a machine, and if you sales or service guys aren't there, then ooh, it's terrifying.
1: Oh yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah.
2: Luckily, our uh, our service guys just stop by a couple times a month just to say hello.
1: That's awesome. Uh, I mean, yeah. That's that. I mean, that's one reason we went with the machine we did recently. Is the guys were so good, both sales and service. So I, I totally understand. Oh yeah,
2: That's yeah, good. Got a we've got a pretty good relationship with our applications engineer through Elliot. He uh, he plants a tree every time I make a complaint. <laughs> so that's good. We got a, a nice Doctor Phil experience forest growing. <laughs> <laughs> Nature walks through that when I'm older.
1: Yeah, there you go. Oh boy!
0: Another question we have from Boone Freeman is: What is the your favorite machine that you've run at, like past, previous jobs, past work experiences?
2: Uh, it's a, my favorite. Still, would be our our first Herco, our first five axis Herco. One of the machines I've been probably the most confident I've ever used was a. Uh, an Akuma, an LB 3000. Oh, that's a big oil field machine. That was a or LB 3500. I can't remember the LB something, but yeah, those were just machines. You know that whatever you threw at them, they would do. If you took that one inch depth of cut by accident, it would do oh, it. Oh, jeez. Yeah, you'd break the tool, but it would cut it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, for the, for the funnest machine, it's definitely still our Herco. Uh, I just love that machine does everything I need it to do. Uh, I could give you the salesman pitch of it, it holds tense every day. <laughs> but uh, all day long. But, uh, I mean, it's just a fantastic machine. It's just fun to play with. And, I mean, five axes. You can't say no to that. Sometimes I'll do swarfed chamfers just
1: because uh, just because I want to see the machine move. And that's a trunnion style, right?
2: Yeah the the way they do it is it's it's built off the same platform as their bigger 3 axis but they actually take the table off and put in a permanently mounted trunnion.
1: Oh cool. So it's like the old uh, Haas TRs. The FTR yeah. or whatever. Okay, that's really cool.
2: Yeah. You can't actually remove it. It's just it's
1: part of the part of the thing. I'm sure that's a lot more rigid than if they just threw it on a table or something.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to dial it in every time.
1: Is that a CAT 40? bt 40 yeah yeah everything we have is
2: a big plus cat
1: okay great what kind of tooling do you guys use i mean do you have any fancy shrink fit or any of that stuff or is it mostly collets and oh for
2: for all of our roughing like i'll use a half inch uh uh, illuminator from or illuminator from uh, gw for all of our roughing Uh, we use gw for everything Uh, but all our roughing and finishing and surfacing tools are all in shrink fit and then all of our drills and taps and uh, anything special will go in collets. I'll put all our drills and taps are in ER ER-16
1: collets. Okay. Do you guys have your own, I mean, you must have your own shrink fit machine. What'd you end up going with?
2: Uh, We still use a torch. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, we built a little, um, we have two, we built a a heat gun, like we actually made a heat gun for a shrink fit. Uh, but it takes so long to do so we built a little uh, system that just rotates the tool as you put a, a flame to it just so you're hitting it from at least all all the way around but i mean we haven't had any issues with that yet that's awesome. we're not we're not getting these things cherry red with uh with a torch either like i think a few people do
1: right yeah they're not turning black out yeah. afterwards or anything like that
2: yeah no just just enough to open it up so i can drop
1: a tool in do you guys have any problems pulling out broken tools? Uh, sometimes if, if a tool will break in like a
2: below the, um, the tip of the, t- the tool holder, then, I mean, then that's the fun process. If you heat it up, I got to push the tool like the end mill a little bit further down, then try and scrape out any burrs, then heat it back up and then try and get the thing out. <laughs> but, uh. That's happened, well, I'd say I it happens a few times. It's probably happened four or five times on each holder we have. But I have no problems putting a tool back in and having that run for a few months before having to change it again. Oh, wow. We have no, no real run-out issues. I mean, most of our stuff, we're working within the Harley worlds. And the Harley world is, I don't even think the engineers have heard of tolerances. <laughs> <laughs> I there. I. I can be used to be making everything to a couple of thou or five thou tolerance, and then it would fit on one bike, and then it wouldn't fit on the next bike. So, I mean, our tolerance has to be 30 thou for most of our things, just so that it'll fit on every bike.
1: Oh, wow. That's crazy.
2: Run out's not even really that big of an issue for us. It could be 10 thou out, and we're still okay.
1: That's bizarre. I never even thought about having to make things you know, so loose that they'll actually fit on all of the bikes. Yeah. And it, it catches us all the
2: time because like Dale and I are both perfectionists. So we're, you know, we want to hit those tight Grimsmo tolerances, but if we do, it's not going to work on anything but the bike we built it for.
1: <laughs>
2: but it's, it's a whole other way of thinking. Wow! Yeah. And uh, then you, gotta, you have to build things for people who are also assembling these bikes in their garages that might not have the, the proper tools so you can't have you know pipe tolerances where you would need something press fit in perfectly it's got to be loose so someone with this jamming a metric allen key because they don't have the right <laughs> allen key in there to put something on it's, you got to think about that when we're designing things
1: oh boys yeah yeah i, I definitely know the the feeling i've worked on enough bikes and, and dealt with enough motorcycle mechanics or people that think they're motorcycle mechanics that um i know what you're talking about
2: yeah, all the pieces have to be
1: beefy enough to be hit
2: by a hammer and also beefy enough to be used <laughs> right, as a hammer.
1: Right, exactly. So speaking of cool things that you're making, I saw you made a pretty sweet triple tree uh, for AU. Do you have a class you want to plug? Or
2: Yeah, yeah, so I'll be teaching a class on Thursday, uh, basically going over how I can take the complicated parts that we do and other projects I've done and how to machine them quickly. So the processes I do to take something like that swing arm or those triple clamps and break them down so you can do same-day delivery kind of thing.
1: So how long did that triple tree so take you?
2: Well, the first one I did, I had it same day. Uh, with the ones for AU, because I've made two of these now, the ones for AU I, I spent some time on. So they were they were probably a day mm-hmm. or two each. I made six, I think, in total Oh, then. wow. Yeah. So at, uh, at AU, this is actually a fun, this has been a project we've been working with, uh, with our desk for a couple months now, uh, working with their team as they were releasing the two and a half axis generative, uh, side. So the, one of the big things was taking our trip clamps, putting them through generative to do the two axis or 2.5 axis stuff. So you can make Really nice. I still think they look really nice, but they're a lot easy to easier to manufacture and uh, a lot lighter. Um, So this is a project we're working with them. So at AU, you're going to see our regular triple clamps, top and bottom that I designed, then the two and a half axis design ones, then the three axis design ones that I just finished. Um, and then there's going to be a 3d printed or the, the generative meant for 3d printed, uh, is going to be there as well.
1: Oh, how cool. That'll be an awesome class. I'm yeah. Definitely.
2: Yeah. So you are going to be at year. AU. Going to be a... oh,
1: sorry, I'm there? definitely bummed. I can't make it this year. Um, I oh, also yeah, have to watch the, the broadcast once you guys record it and post it up.
2: Oh yeah, definitely. And yeah, hopefully we'll bring these, uh, hopefully fusion does another one of those, uh, uh, fusion academies and we can bring them there as well oh that'll be great yeah
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah it's, it's a it's been a really fun really fun project working with them i think you can try out all the new steep and shallow tool pass to make all these crazy generative things it's a uh, pretty nice oh
1: yeah, so do you use a lot out of the uh extensions like the extended probing and things like that
2: yeah i i do now um i, I was helping them out or kind of on the bedded team for a while, Uh, but then didn't really have a lot of stuff to, didn't really have a lot of products to make with them. Like everything I have is already run and in production, but everything I'm doing now uh, for the last couple of weeks is all steep and shallow, like heavy, steep, and shallow. Um, I'm using a lot more of the probing on the Matsura to measure our pieces. So and and doing the deep print so i have a full list of, of actual measurements on a lot of our parts we're doing now uh, so i can keep track of it a lot easier
1: oh that's awesome that's
2: that's the, yeah that's a system we're putting in place now is a lot more of this a uh, little more in-depth uh, fusion side of things
1: so are you also um i know i took grimsmo's class at the last au on you know doing all the macro stuff through fusion are you doing a lot of that directly out of fusion as well Oh yeah. Everything.
2: One of my biggest things is because I'm really lazy is I don't want to touch the code out of fusion. So if I don't have to, I don't want to. So I will do a lot of the macros, uh, a lot of the extra probing variables and things. I will do that with manual NC in fusion and they'll make templates. So it's a lot easier. I can just drag and drop them into programs. Uh, yeah. I mean, everything that I try for like 99% of the things we do will be a 100% fusion and I just post and and run them.
1: That's great. Yeah.
2: So, yeah. A lot of the things are a little more, I, you know, you got to do some work to your post to dial some things in, but yeah, it's worth it if I don't have to think about it or if I can be, you know, on a beach somewhere and I can have my employee post a program and don't have to worry about hand editing anything and he can just, post it and run the program that's that's where we want to be
1: definitely yeah that makes total sense
2: yeah i was gonna i was you know i was, I was gonna say i think I believe dylan you were actually the uh the first instant machinist i ever followed
1: really well
2: yeah when i first got in or when i first joined instagram i uh, noticed machinists were there yeah you were the you're actually the first one
1: i followed that is pretty cool <laughs> well i appreciate yeah. that um <laughs> That it, I'm full circle yeah seriously well we, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast um it's Dylan are you gonna to... ask
0: the one question
1: oh yes some guy posted on there named Phil he said what's your favorite style of potato <laughs> I don't
2: oh good I'm glad you asked I've been thinking about this oh <laughs> uh, a twice big fiend that is it's got everything it's got the potato skins the mashed potatoes the the fry style—it's—it's it's the best potato. I don't care what everyone else says. <laughs> nice bake all the way.
1: And then, and then uh, uh, a final question is: uh, How much and what's included in the experience?
2: <laughs> that you know, I don't think anyone's gotten the full experience yet. It's a, <laughs> a private thing. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, I think that's probably an excellent note to end the podcast. On. <laughs> um, we really appreciate you coming on. Anybody who's listening, please go check the Dr. Phil experience out, go take his class. If you're going to be at AU, you know, definitely stick with us. We'll be back next week with intolerance podcast at With Intolerance podcast on Instagram. Um, and thanks again, Phil, for coming on.
2: Yeah. No, thanks for having me. It's been great.
0: All right. Thanks again, Phil. And we'll see you next week, everyone.